Are you afraid of flying? What is it you're afraid of? Crashing? Going down in a burning tube of steel? What could be worse? How about being on a plane that just disappears, leaving no real evidence of its whereabouts behind at all? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who likes to pretend they're too cool for school, but who has to take frequent anxiety naps. This week, look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. It was a plane, it's literally not there anymore. It disappeared. Where the hell did that entire airplane go? Have you ever been on a plane when things start to go wrong? Like the air starts getting bumpy? The captain comes over the intercom and calmly says there's just a little turbulence and to fasten your seatbelt. Now imagine if things started to really go wrong. You see the flight attendants start to hurry up and down the aisles. It gets really quiet for a minute or two. Even as the plane bounces up and down more, the oxygen masks fall down. The flight attendant reminds you that your cushion is also a flotation device. The cabin starts to smell like smoke. At what point in there do you stop trying to convince yourself that everything is going to be fine and admit to yourself that this might be it? That's what must have been going through the heads of the 236 passengers and crew on board Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 on March 8, 2014. The flight took off from Kuala Lumpur at 12.41 a.m., heading to Beijing International Airport but it never arrived. As far as anyone knows, Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 never arrived anywhere. Whatever happened to the plane, it was likely not a mechanical issue. The plane, a Boeing 777, had been in service since 2002 and had a history free of major incidents. I've never thought about this before, but 12 years seems like a long time for an airplane to be in service. I mean, of course, they can't just go around replacing planes every five minutes. Planes are expensive. But how long do they let a plane operate before sending it out to pasture? Also, what constitutes a major incident? How many minor incidents does a plane get to go through before they retire it? I'm not super scared of flying, but... That's starting to change. At the controls of the plane that day were the head pilot, Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah, and his first officer, Fareek Hamid. Fareek Hamid was only 27 years old, and he was still finishing up some of his training on the 777 aircraft, which I find concerning. He was finishing up his training on a plane full of people. Like, what? Zahari, on the other hand, was one of the most senior captains at Malaysia Airlines, with over 18,000 hours of flight experience. He's the exact kind of pilot you hope is inside the cockpit when you step on a plane. But on this day, Zahari was distracted, maybe even depressed. His wife was leaving him. His life outside the cockpit was crumbling. So as I said, Flight 370 took off from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia at 12.41 a.m. local time. 
At 1.19 a.m., just as the plane was set to leave Malaysian airspace and enter Vietnam, the Kuala Lumpur air controller radioed the plane and told them to check in with the air controllers in Ho Chi Minh City once they entered their airspace. Zahari radioed back, Good night, Malaysia 370, which I assume means I'm leaving Malaysian airspace, but does it have to be so creepy? Like, can't they just say, leaving Malaysian airspace? And then, Flight 370 dropped off the radar screens at Malaysian Air Traffic Control. So, here's something to terrify you. For people who are afraid of flying, that fear usually centers around the things that we can see or feel in the plane, like the plane suddenly plummeting thousands of feet, or a man with a gun somehow gaining entry into the cockpit. But we never think about the other stuff that can go wrong on a flight and cost us our lives. For example, there are systems in place, protocols to be followed for when a plane disappears from radar the way Flight 370 did. But those systems only protect us if the people managing them are paying attention, doing their jobs. But what if those people are asleep at the wheel or just not paying attention? Humans are fallible, especially, it seems, the ones who should have been tracking Flight 370. The Malaysian air controller that should have seen the plane drop off the map somehow missed it. He would later say he, quote, was dealing with other traffic elsewhere on his screen and simply didn't notice. Is it just me or should there be some kind of system in place that lets you know when an entire plane full of humans inexplicably drops off radar? Like a calm voice going, hey, people, this is weird. From here, it just gets worse. When air controllers in Vietnam couldn't locate the plane in their airspace, they waited 18 minutes to alert their Malaysian counterparts instead of the five minutes that protocol calls for. At that point, Malaysia should have notified authorities within an hour of the disappearance, but for some reason, they just didn't. And already, within an hour seems generous. I don't know who's writing these rules, but it seems to me that if a plane disappears from radar, authorities should be notified immediately. No? And when the authorities were eventually notified, the emergency rescue response was also a shit show. It didn't even begin until 6.32 a.m. And just in case you forgot, that's five hours after the plane didn't check in and dropped off radar. At 6.32 a.m., the plane should have been taxiing to its gate in Beijing. The passengers should have been turning on their phones, texting their loved ones, letting them know they'd arrived. Instead, no one could account for the whereabouts of 236 human beings and an airplane bigger than an Olympic-sized swimming pool. As you can probably imagine, the search effort, once it actually started, was massive. It included 34 ships and 28 aircraft from seven different countries. The initial search was concentrated in the South China Sea between Malaysia and Vietnam because that's where the plane dropped off radar. And that's where the plane was supposed to be headed, toward China to Beijing. But as the search party would find out, that's not at all where Flight 370 had gone. So... 
how do we know that Malaysian Flight 370 had veered off course and that the rescue mission was looking in the wrong place? Well, it turns out that even if a plane drops from air traffic control radar, it can still be tracked by military radar. In the case of Flight 370, the flight path was reconstructed some months later after it vanished using this method. So here's what the military radar tells us. And folks, if you're a queasy flyer, go ahead and grab that barf bag and get that head between your knees because this one is a doozy. Soon after vanishing from air traffic control radar, the plane banked sharply to the left, making an almost 180-degree turn. A 180-degree turn. For context, let me ask you this. Have you ever been on a plane that, for whatever reason, has to circle the airport before landing? This is very common, but for the nervous flyer, it's scary. Even just flying in that lazy circle pattern requires the plane to lift and tilt in ways that make it look and feel like it's going to tumble out of the sky. Now imagine the terror of a sharp and violent banking to the left, where the 400-ton airplane you're strapped into tries to turn itself around on a dime 35,000 feet in the air. I literally cannot imagine what that must have felt like for the people who experienced it. The shaking of the plane, the way their bodies would have been pulled and strained against their seatbelts, the absolute knowing that something was terribly, terribly wrong. The plane flew back over Malaysia, aligned itself to the right while passing over the island of Penang, and then at 2.22 a.m., Flight 370 disappeared off radar altogether as it headed toward the Indian Ocean. And here's the most haunting thing I read in all of the research I did for this episode. Flight 370 continued to automatically ping a satellite until 8.19 a.m., which tells us the plane was flying for at least six hours after disappearing off radar. Six hours. Just sit with that for a minute. A plane full of people is flying around for six hours, apparently doing its own thing with no one able to stop it, with no one even trying to stop it because no one knew it was up there. Rethinking that flight to see your parents? These satellite pings don't give us the exact location of the plane, but using fancy math and triangulating or whatever, it was determined that the plane ended up somewhere over Kazakhstan or the southern Indian Ocean. Now, since there were no reports out of Kazakhstan of a rogue 777 crashing into a mountain, the assumption was that Flight 370 eventually crashed somewhere in the southern Indian Ocean. This is where the bulk of the search efforts shifted. Unfortunately, this is also one of the most desolate places on the entire planet. As one U.S. government official told CNN, to be lost at sea out there is nearly as lethal as being stranded in outer space. No thanks, folks. No thanks. What followed was the most expensive and expansive search in aviation history. It cost hundreds of millions of dollars, involved planes, ships, submarines, and satellites from 26 different countries, and you know what I'm going to say next. It never found the plane or the people on board. This should be a drinking game. 
Eventually, debris from Flight 730 began to wash ashore on beaches around the Indian Ocean. So we can safely assume the plane crashed into the ocean, but that's about the only thing we know for certain. So what happened to Flight 370? How did a plane headed for China end up, we think, crashing into the Indian Ocean? Remember when I told you Captain Zahari's life was falling apart? Turns out, pilots, they're just like us. You know how when things are going bad in your life, it tends to cloud how you see everything? Well, that's what some experts think happened here. The most pervasive theory about what happened to Flight 370 is that Captain Zahari was so depressed, he planned and executed a suicide-slash-mass murder. That he was basically like, my wife is leaving me, I have nothing to live for. Not my children, not the other woman I'm dating, not the passengers whose lives are in my hands, nothing. So, how do you hijack your own airplane full of people and intentionally sabotage it? Don't ask me, I'm just the person telling the story. I don't know. I have questions, though. First of all, if this is what happened, how did Zahari disable the transponder? You know, the thing that connects the plane to the radar system? It seems like a really important function that shouldn't just have an off switch, right? Like, it's great that my iPhone can enter airplane mode, but maybe actual airplanes shouldn't have that feature? John Villasenor, a professor of electric engineering and public policy at UCLA, explained that the pilot can turn off various systems in order to prevent a fire. And apparently the transponder is one of them. Like, the electrical system is often the cause of airplane fires, so people thought, why not just give pilots the option to switch them off? Um, I don't know, maybe to keep the people alive? Like, sure, there's no fire, I guess, but now all the lights are off and no one can communicate with air traffic control? And what about the co-pilot? You think if Zahari was like, I'm going to go ahead and turn this thing off, that his co-pilot would have been like, uh, that seems like a bad idea, Bob. How did Zahari pull off this maneuver with another pilot sitting right next to him? Was the co-pilot a co-conspirator? Most likely not. Apparently all Zahari would have had to do was ask his co-pilot to go check something out in the cabin. And in a post-9-11 world, cockpit doors are designed to keep people out. Once the co-pilot was out, he wasn't getting back in. Which I guess makes sense so terrorists can't get into the cockpit, but like, what if the pilot is dying and needs help? Or, I don't know, what if the pilot is hijacking his own plane on a suicide mission? Shouldn't there be a failsafe or something? So, according to this theory, now Zahari is in the cockpit alone. He's disabled the transponder and is in complete control of the plane. So what about the 236 other people on board? Was the co-pilot not freaking out? The rest of the crew? Well, in this scenario, it's likely that Sahari had incapacitated all of them. 
At higher altitudes, air pressure is lower, which makes it harder for us to breathe. At the altitude a plane flies, the air pressure is so low that we will suffocate without additional oxygen. This is why all commercial airline cabins are pressurized. More importantly, this is why if you want to kill everyone on board, all you have to do is depressurize the cabin. Here's another thing to terrify you. The only thing keeping you from dying on an airplane is a button labeled depressurize. Try not to think about that next time you're 30,000 feet in the air. So basically, this is how it would have happened. After the plane dropped off radar around 1.20 a.m., Zahari would have asked his co-pilot to grab him a cup of coffee from the flight attendant station or something like that and lock the door behind him once that poor bastard left. Next, he would have pressed the shiny red button that says depressurize, and out in the cabin, oxygen masks would have dropped from the compartment above your head. Normally, there would be enough oxygen to last everyone 15 minutes during an emergency descent. At 40,000 feet, however, they would have been of no use. According to an article in The Atlantic, the cabin occupants would have become incapacitated within a couple minutes, lost consciousness, and gently died without any choking or gasping for air. The scene would have been dimly lit by the emergency lights, with the dead belted into their seats, their faces nestled into the worthless oxygen masks dangling on tubes from the ceiling. Like, I get it, the Atlantic. This is a beautiful and haunting image. Well done. But this doesn't take into account that the co-pilot would have been getting increasingly alarmed, banging on the cockpit door, probably screaming for the captain to let him in. Or the flight attendants running back and forth shouting, Don't panic! Don't panic! Probably keenly aware that their pilot was now in the process of killing them. Or the passengers panicking as they realized amid the chaos that something was horribly wrong and jumping up to try to do something. Like, there would have at least been one person going, uh, I'm not getting much from the oxygen mask, are you? Meanwhile, in the cockpit, Zahari had access to a mask with hours worth of oxygen. So he would have been able to survive the depressurization. And again, I ask, why? Why would the captain need hours of oxygen if the rest of the plane only gets 15 minutes worth? What scenario is that designed for? If this was the case, then after the horrible few minutes it took everyone in the cabin to die, Zahari was still alive, with 236 silent souls strapped into their seats or sprawled out in the aisle behind him, the captain of a ghost ship sailing through the clouds until he ran out of gas and plummeted into the depths of the most desolate ocean in the world. Hmm, maybe I should get a job writing for The Atlantic. But why? Why would Zahari do this? And what's the evidence that leads so many to believe this scenario to be true? Zahari Ahmad Shah's sister described him as a man with a passion for life, for family, and above all, for flying. Look, far be it from me to tell you how to prioritize your life, buddy, but shouldn't your family be slightly above flying on your list of passions? Another friend claimed he was a fanatic for the three Fs, food, family, and flying. Not, by the way, what I would have thought that third F stood for, but anyway. Who spent most of his free time cooking and using a flight simulator that he built in one of his homes. And despite what Zahari is suspected of doing, maybe all of this was true. 
Maybe Zahari really did love his family more than anything, except flying. And maybe that's exactly why the implosion of his family life drove him to the edge. A fellow pilot and longtime associate of Zahari who spoke to The Atlantic anonymously paints a picture of a man whose life was closing in on all sides. He had been facing serious family problems, including separation from his wife and relationship problems with another woman he was seeing. Captain Zahari was terribly upset when his wife told him she was leaving. He was one of the finest pilots around, and I'm no medical expert, but with all that was happening in his life, Zahari was probably in no state of mind to be flying. Look, I'm no medical expert either, Bob, but killing yourself and a plane full of innocent people is more than just no state of mind to be in to be flying. That's some seriously unhinged 5150-level psychosis. Some investigators in the aviation and intelligence communities believe that Zahari may have been clinically depressed. And, like, same, my friend. But even in my darkest depths, and trust me, I have had some seriously dark depths, I have literally never considered taking 200-plus people with me. You know? And there is hard evidence that Sahari may have been thinking about and even planning a murder-slash-suicide mission. Remember how he built himself a flight simulator? Well, the FBI analyzed its data and discovered that Sahari had been experimenting with flight paths that roughly matched the path of the doomed Flight 370. According to the FBI, he didn't actually sit in the simulator for the seven-hour flight. Instead, he fast-forwarded the simulation to see how long it would take for the fuel to run out. In other words, like playing a game of The Sims, he used fast-forward mode to get through the boring parts. Detectives would also point to the fact that, unlike his crew, Zahari had cleared his calendar of social and work commitments. No one can say with any certainty what happened to Flight 370. And these experts are really only hypothesizing. But what if the desire for answers is making us see things that aren't there? What if our fear of the unknown is making Zahari a scapegoat for this entire disaster? What if instead of trying to kill everyone on board, Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah was trying to save them? Chris Goodfellow, a former pilot with over 20 years of experience, thinks it just might be that Sahari was desperately trying to save his passengers and crew when the plane disappeared from radar. Goodfellow thinks that during takeoff, an underinflated tire in the front landing gear, located under the cockpit, overheated, began to smolder, then caught fire, producing, quote, a horrific incapacitating smoke. He believes the fire entered the cockpit at approximately 1.19 a.m. and that the fire, not Captain Zahari, caused all the communications to be lost and for the plane's transponder to drop off radar. Then, as we know, shortly after 1.19 a.m., the plane diverted off course and took that sharp left turn, which was a complete diversion from Flight 370's expected flight path to Beijing. But Goodfellow has a much different interpretation of the left turn. He thinks Zahari was trying to head to a closer airport. The path Zahari put the plane on after that sharp turnaround would have had them heading toward a nearby airport with a 13,000-foot airstrip and an approach over water with no obstacles. The other closest airport was on the other side of a mountain range. 
This theory assumes that if the plane was in fact on fire, Zahari made a calculated decision to get to the airport that would have been easiest to land a plane engulfed in flames on. That trying to navigate through a mountain range on fire would have been hard. Goodfellow thinks that, quote, the flight crew was overcome by smoke and the plane continued on the heading, probably on autopilot, until it ran out of fuel or the fire destroyed the control surfaces and it crashed. Could you imagine? First of all, could you imagine being on a plane that is on fire? All I can hope in this scenario is that everyone was quickly overcome by smoke and didn't suffer for too long. That is all I can think anyone can hope for in a fiery death. Second of all, what if Goodfellow is right? What if Captain Zahari was actually trying to save these people and instead the narrative became that he was some awful monster who took 236 people out with him? What if Zahari knew they were doomed and was trying to save them and was yelling into his walkie-talkie thing, Hey, air traffic control, listen, the plane is on fire. This is going to look bad if we crash and nobody ever finds us. I can totally see how this will look like I murdered everyone because both my wife and my mistress are super mad at me, but I swear I didn't do it. Unfortunately, if this did happen, the black box was never recovered. So we'll likely never know Zahari's last words, no matter what they were. Listen, if ghosts do exist, I would imagine that Zahari would be somewhere desperately trying to get people to know he didn't murder all those passengers. If there was any reason to cross into this dimension from the ghost dimension, that seems like a good one. Clear your name. Now, if you're super paying attention, at this moment you might be wondering what about all those pings that suggested the plane flew for six more hours after turning off course? And look, you can say it with me, I'm not an airplane engineer, but wouldn't a fire cause the plane to go down hours earlier? How could the plane have kept flying for six hours completely on fire? Well, what if the satellite pings were faked? What if instead of a murder-slash-suicide or a deadly fire, the plane was hijacked and flown to Kazakhstan? That's what author and journalist Jeff Wise thinks happened. His theory is also referred to as the spoof theory because it involves the hijackers spoofing or faking the satellite pings to create a fake flight path. Now, what I'm about to tell you is some serious MacGyver shit, so try to stay with me. Jeff Wise believes that hijackers gained access to the electronics and equipment bay via a hatch in the front of the first-class cabin. From there, they managed to manipulate, or spoof, the satellite pings so that it looked like the plane was heading south, but was actually flying north to Kazakhstan, where the hijackers landed it, offloaded the passengers to a fate unknown, and then buried the plane in order to hide it from satellite imagery. And before I get into the why or who of this, I just want to say, you can't get into the cockpit from the cabin using the cockpit door, but you can using a fucking hatch? Who is designing these planes, and can I speak to their manager? Also, why bury the plane? Why not just completely take it apart? I would imagine there's valuable stuff you can get from taking a plane apart. So, who would have interest in hijacking this plane? Well... Why not the Russians? That's who Jeff Wise thinks is behind this one, and I'll let him explain in his own words. 
Why exactly would Putin want to steal a Malaysian passenger plane? I had no idea. You and me both, Jeff. But... It just so happened that there were three ethnically Russian men aboard Flight 370. Russians? On an airplane? Tell me more, Jeff. Could any of these men, I wondered, be special forces or covert operatives? I don't know, Jeff. Could they? As I looked at the few pictures available on the internet, they definitely struck me as the sort who might battle Liam Neeson in midair. Okay, Jeff. Have a juice box, take a deep breath, and put yourself in timeout. Once you start inserting Liam Neeson into your conspiracy theories, I'm checking out. Sounds like someone wants a Netflix deal. This theory is a reach, but just wait. You know what they say, if you can't come up with the answer, blame aliens. Someone from an anonymous Twitter account claimed to have received a voicemail that contained a message from the black box of Flight 370 claiming there were aliens on board. Or something like that. In the message, an automated female voice reads off a series of letters in the phonetic alphabet that spells out the message, Danger. SOS, it is dire for you to evacuate. Be cautious, they are not human. The message then reads off a series of numbers. 0429339642302. Some people believe the numbers are coordinates, somehow. Snopes filed this one under their junk news section, and that's probably where it belongs. Well, if it wasn't aliens, maybe a, a black hole swallowed the plane? Why not? TheRap.com interviewed a physicist, and here's what that physicist said. Even if a black hole capable of swallowing a plane out of the sky did exist, a lot of other things would be missing as well. When asked for examples of what we'd notice missing, he said, Probably the Earth! On the seven-year anniversary of Flight 370's disappearance, a report came out saying new research by oceanographers and flight experts suggests the wreckage may lie in another as-yet-unexplored region of the ocean. And these same experts are calling for the search for Flight 370 to continue. Who knows if that'll ever happen? What we do know is that as long as questions remain about the fate of Flight 370, people will continue to wonder... And maybe that's a good thing, because at the end of the day, this isn't a story about a missing plane. It's a story about missing people. What's a mystery to us is a tragedy to their families. Maybe finding the plane can finally give them the closure they deserve. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. In July 2020, the New York Times published an explosive piece detailing what a lot of people already knew. UFOs are real. Navy pilots have been coming face to face with them in the sky for decades. And the government has been keeping this a secret. I'll tell you two terrifying stories of these UFO encounters and take you back to Roswell, New Mexico, where America's UFO fascination and cover-ups began. 
We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, edited by Claire Smith-Marish, and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatak. Our voice actors for this week were Luther Creek and Raymond J. Lee. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you don't, just don't go rate us. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod and check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Also, if you're enjoying our show, check out all of the Obsessed Network shows, including Murder in Alliance, a real-time investigative podcast uncovering the truth behind the murder of 26-year-old Yvonne Lane in Alliance, Ohio. David Thorne has spent over 20 years in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Although he says this case is dead in the water, this week's episode focuses on his wife, Sue Thorne, who has kept his case alive all these years and uncovered new evidence that could point to David's innocence. Find Murder and Alliance wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>